Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on contact to send me a message. And now on with the interview. Hi, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte in New York. I'm very excited about my guest today. We're talking about a very popular topic with them in psychology from a not-so-popular way of approaching it. My guests are a father and daughter duo who have written a very useful and very engaging book about love and about finding the right partner, but they bring a business management spin to their approach. There are a lot of myths in our culture about what the key ingredients are for a good relationship, and my guests today address these myths head-on, and they let us know based on their experience and wisdom, which ideas help us and which ones lead us into trouble. And they do so using practical, strategic suggestions. So I'm very eager to get into the material. But before we do that, let me introduce my guests. We have Dr. Michael Bennett and his daughter, Sarah Bennett. And the book is entitled F Love, One Shrink's Sensible Advice for Finding a Lasting Relationship, published by Touchstone 2017. Dr. Michael Bennett is a Harvard-educated, board-certified psychiatrist in private practice in Boston, and his daughter, Sarah Bennett, is a writer for magazines, television, books, the internet, and for sketch comedy, most notably at the Upright Citizens Brigade here in New York. And their prior book is entitled F Feelings. Sarah and Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. So... I want to get to the material, but before we do, I feel it's important to ask you how you came to write this book, how, how really you guys came to team up on this project. Um, well, we were thinking of what to work on after our first book, and it really was as simple as thinking of, you know, what do people buy advice books about? Because neither of us has ever really read self-help per se, and I don't think our books are you know, I think everyone can agree they're not really conventional self-help by any measure. Um, and so, you know, I, we thought about what do people read and what do my father's patients come in to talk about? And um, relationships was basically at the top of that list. So and given that my father's approach is to giving advice is so pragmatic and, you know, not in any way mushy or emotional. <laughs> um, it made it easier to write this together. You know, it's we re- we didn't even think in the process that 
that a father-daughter team writing a book about relationships would be odd. Just because it's to us, it's so businesslike. There's has very little to do with intimacy because that that would be really, um, I guess, the best word would be icky. Um, but it's because his approach is so straightforward. Uh, it it that didn't seem like an issue. It just seemed like the obvious choice of what we should work on. Uh, Michael, do you you and your daughter talk about this? topic a lot i mean is this something you you talked about even before you wrote the first book well what really uh got us going on the first book aside from the fact that sarah suddenly had some time on her hands because of a writer's strike um was that there were uh the best part of my work was having conversations with patients about what they could not change and it was usually bittersweet and funny and usually led to a more creative approach to managing a problem that uh, somebody had to accept, at least in part. And that was our first book, was to demonstrate that this applies to almost anything you can think of. It's a sort of operational view of the serenity prayer. Um, And then we got to thinking about how many of the patients I see are uh, in the throes of a breakup that could have been predicted 10 or 20 years earlier when they first got together and how these breakups, the uh, divorce, is so painful for so many people. So we really uh, wanted again to make a plea that ran counter to some of the the way our culture... um, uh, uh, idealizes strong emotion and love and attraction and say, look, what really makes relationships last and allows a better kind of love to grow are basic principles that have been around for a long, long time. And that when you're attracted or um, and whether it's by sex or neediness or strong, strong infatuation, whatever it is, it gets you to forget that you have to do some basic screening that has more to do with values and character. And we wanted to demonstrate how almost every characteristic you can think of that gets idealized should be seen very carefully in terms of its potential risks and a regular common sense screening process should take place regardless of how strongly you feel. Uh, Hence the title. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sarah, can you say something about the title? It's very blunt. It's, it's, uh, it's Mm -hmm. it's, It's very forward. It's very bold. What are you trying? What's the meta message you're trying to send by using this title, which I know is also similar to the, you know, plays off of the title of the first book. Um, But what are you trying to say? Well, the title for the first book and, you know, for this book uh, comes from my father's approach. You know, he, when he has people that come to his office uh, and when I was growing up, his office was in the deepest, darkest suburbs of Boston. Now people would only go to see a shrink when they, it's not so much they had a impossible, unsolvable problem that was so unique and special. It's that they had an 
possible idea of how to fix that problem. Mm. And they had talked to everyone they knew and, you know, trying to get them to give them an idea of how to fix it in this specific way. And everyone was tired of hearing it to the point where they have to pay someone to listen to them in the deepest, darkest suburbs of Boston. Um, And the way to knock people out of their rut of what they thought they wanted and what they thought the answer was, was, is for my father um, to make them laugh. You know, it's a really easy way of getting to reset their minds because they're obviously very focused and very serious but they're focused and serious on, uh, you know, something that isn't going to work. You know, if someone comes in and says, my problem is that my mom and I can't stop fighting. My goal is for us to have a loving relationship. And this person is in their 30s. So that's been 30 years of a, a terrible relationship. Uh, my father will say, um, you know, well, that's not a goal. That's a wish. And that's also a blanking, stupid idea. <laughs> Do you want to know why I know that? And he'll say, well, how do you think you know that? And he'll say, because I went to Harvard. And he'll tap on his diploma. <laughs> and if they think he's just if they think he's just a jerk, then they'll leave. And, you know, they'll go find someone who will give them tissues and ask them about their dreams or whatever they expect from psychiatry. But if they can laugh at that, then it's the easiest way. It's like the proverbial, metaphorical, whatever, smack across the face. You know, they snap out of it and they start to see their problem for what it really is and see a realistic goal, which is you're not going to probably have a loving relationship, but you can have a peaceful one mm-hmm. if you put in boundaries, if you're more thoughtful about what you say, if you avoid certain topics. So we use ex- the expletives um, because, A, we're, we're doing a favor for people that are looking for more conventional, touchy-feely self-help. They're not going to buy a book like this and we just saved them some money. Um, And also to make people laugh, to make them look at it and think, huh, you know, well, that seems ridiculous. And if you can read it with your mind being opened up in that way, and maybe so you are already rethinking what this advice will, will be or what solution your problem may have, then you're getting off on the right foot. Then this book will be able to reach you in a more efficient way. I've always agreed that humor is a great way to break the ice and make it possible to talk about something that is otherwise very awkward or anxiety provoking to talk about. Um, Staying with you, though, for one moment longer, Sarah, I am I mean, you seem so it sounds like you and your father have have talked a lot about the, the work that he does and and the way that he handles it. But I'm also wondering what experience of your own you are you've brought to this task and to and to the into the book. Um, well, my father is very funny in person. Um, but when he writes, um, you know, most of his writing experience since college has been writing charts and the humor can get lost. Um, and he can just sound like a jerk. Cause if you don't know, he's kidding when he does the Harvard tapping thing, you just think, wow, what an, an a-hole. <laughs> it's gonna be hard for me to censor myself, but I'm going to try. Um, so, you know, I, I write, I always say uh, we'll write for food is my life philosophy. And a lot of the humor I write is really, I'm not that sophisticated. So I help him keep his humor intact and I make sure to add additional humor so that that tone, that important balance is there, that people know that this is serious advice, but not to take these problems so seriously that you can't see what the best approach to working with the problem is mm-hmm. that you don't get too depressed. Cause you know, obviously a lot of people, if they are depressed will think, 
uh, will not, won't be able to think of anything but the most negative outcome. Mm-hmm. Or you know, people often think their problems are so unique. Um, and, you know, my father is a shrink, but so is my mother. So part of the reason I know his approach so well and I know sort of his world so well is because all my dinner table conversations as a kid were on these topics. I mean, when I was younger, they were about the severely mentally ill because both of my parents worked in public health as mentally ill. Um, but they would, you know, talk shop over dinner and ask each other advice. Uh, well, I did this for this patient. Do you think that that was the right move? Um, I decided that I should send so-and-so to this guy as a specialist. Um, was there someone better? You know, all these sort of conversations about their work, about their patients, about what asking each other what the right thing to do is or what they would have done in that, in that situation. Uh, so I've always heard this talk and I've always, you know, my, the reason I suggested writing this book is because my dad loved to talk about fun patients he had that day where he really thought that they'd had some sort of breakthrough in a funny way. And his patients would often tell him, I wish you'd written that down. Like that, that advice you gave me about how to talk to my husband or how to deal with my boss. I wish I had that on a piece of paper so I could remember it when I was, when I'm more stressed out and angry when everything else flies out of my head, but how angry I am. Um, And that's, was the original idea for this realizing oh we can write that down like there are no jobs right now i have nothing to do but help you write this down <laughs> and i needed something to do or i'm going to go crazy so mm-hmm. let's work on a book. Mm-hmm. uh so like my contribution is mostly keeping it fun but i also uh sort of have my psychiatry training by proxy mm-hmm. uh and also not just from hearing it but from being from writers and and artists and you know generally mentally wonky people um mm-hmm. giving advice by proxy for my father being like well what would you tell my friend who is clearly manic and not taking her meds on one extreme example or for someone who is in a terrible relationship and you know with another comedian which is always often a terrible idea i can't say always i just went to the wedding of two comedians <laughs> but you know and ask him and then pass that advice along um, so in that way, we uh, have been collaborating for a long time, <laughs> but that's our talents complement each other as well. I can see that. Um, and, and I want to then get right into the topic of love, because one of the things that really comes through in the book is your focus on partnership over romance. And I think you even have a line where you say that def- it's, it's defective partnership and not failed romance that's the chief cause of divorce. But what for you guys is the difference between a romance and a partnership? It's a good question. Um, a romance is more uh, a matter of mutual and special feelings um, and uh, a way of, I guess, a uh, feeling that, that life is suddenly shaped by that and made better by that. Um, a partnership is um, a matter of working together towards some common goals and being able to endure a lot of uh, stress and um, illness and bad luck and uh, still be um, doing better together than you would be otherwise. Um, the the romance element, well, you shouldn't get together in a partnership with somebody 
unless there's some very basic attraction and respect. But romance can go out the window pretty quickly uh, once the uh, poo arrives. And, <laughs> and that's what a lot of a real relationship gets to be about, beginning with the dogs and then the kids and, and so forth. Um, from the, uh, from a sort of, uh, from the perspective of a clinician who sees a lot of, you know, parents, older, younger people, kids, uh, what you're most struck by is the pain of broken partnerships. Uh, romance is nice, but it's, it's beside the point. The, the people who are really trying to, to do something very, very meaningful and are dealing with the toughest things in life are the partners. And when they can do that and still be decent to one another and respect one another and work well together, that's what really seems awesome. It, it sounds like you've discovered, and that this informs your, your approach, that maybe what makes, at the end of the day, what makes people, if not happiest, but gives them the most meaning and allows them to uh, get through life with the most um, peace of mind is is have, having a strong partner, more so than having uh, a romantic partner, having romance in one's life. Is Am I, am I getting that right? Is, is that where this is coming from? Very much so. I mean, we, to it's so much more, uh, I don't know, important and meaningful when you can get through hard times or raise a family and deal with how unfair and difficult life is and make life better. Um, that's really where the heavy lifting is. That's where it's so easy to be, to get, to get worn out and to, uh, to blame one another and, um, stop contributing to one another. Uh, it's there's this endless testing that life does to most of us. So when two people help one another through, it just uh, it seems like that's about the most important thing. And if it doesn't make you happy, uh, that you know, happiness is beyond our control a lot of the time and easily taken away from us by illness or pain or loss but it seems to me that that's something to be very proud of and that that's something that always is under our control to deal with with these things and and do our best and be proud of ourselves and what's great about the book is that it what you've it's laid out in a really great way what you've done essentially is taken all of the characteristics the popular characteristics that people usually look for or, or, or seem to care about when they're dating someone or, or they're looking for a partner. Um, and you've taken each one and devoted a, a chapter to each one in which you really break down what is that thing exactly? How do you define it? And also, how can it help you or how can it hurt you uh, to put a certain kind of emphasis on that kind of criterion or requirement? And maybe what's the right way to approach it. So if, if it's okay with you guys, I want to start with one of the ones that jumped out to me the most, which is communication. Um, 
I, you have a quote that I absolutely love on page 83. And if you don't mind, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it and hope that you might tell us what you mean. You write, <laughs> as valuable as talk can be in any context and via any medium, it can also be just as cheap. In the world of relationships, good communication is considered a crucial element to making any union last. But good doesn't necessarily mean plentiful, constant, or even satisfying. Sarah, tell us what you're saying. Um, well, you know, it, in my mind, it just also reminds me of how people will say something awful to someone and say, well, I'm just being honest, as if that excuses mm, yeah. <laughs> what you're saying. Sometimes there are things that you don't need to honestly share. Um, and, you know, one of my favorite all-time jokes that is not mine, that is my dad's, and I feel like if I repeat it enough, then maybe I can steal it, um, is in regards to couples, <laughs> so in regards to couples therapy, you know, that people often go basically wanting a referee for their fights and someone who will declare a victor. Um, and if you encourage too much sharing, the the joke is that the sharing of thoughts is often like the sharing of intestinal gas. Um, you will feel a brief moment of catharsis once you release it, but it will then possibly poison the air for you and everyone around you for the indeterminate future. <laughs> you know, because there, if you are with someone for a long time, odds and they have a bad habit or they have bad behavior, and you've talked to them about it, let's say twice, and it doesn't change, then it's not it's not going to change, um, not at your urging anyway. So you have to make the decision of whether you can live with it and how you can live with it, or whether it's you can't and it's unacceptable and they're they don't have enough positive qualities to outweigh this one negative thing or maybe several negative things. So just continually communicating your frustration or your anger isn't going to make things better. Uh, it isn't going to make them more eager to change what they're doing. It's going to make them more frustrated with their inability to change what they're doing, make you more frustrated, make them want to be around you less because you're just going to catch them doing this thing they don't want done. You know, it's, it's not going to benefit either one of you. So that's what we mean by knowing what to communicate and when, you know, if you communicated displeasure and more than once and nothing changes, then more communication is not going to lead to improvement. You know, then it becomes choosing your words more wisely or choosing your actions more wisely. But more talking is not going to uh, make anything better for either one of you and will most likely make things worse. But I feel like you're, you're, you guys are going to have to help us with this concept because maybe particularly in this culture or in this era, I think that a lot of folks feel that if it's, if, if communication didn't work the first time, then better communication is going to be the answer. And I think a lot of people just are going to have trouble wrapping their mind around the concept of choosing for the sake of the relationship, for the health of the relationship to just drop something and to, to not speak one's mind. We really put on a pedestal, the concept of speaking one's mind and speaking one's truth. So how, how do you, how do you disabuse people of the myth that that's always the thing to do? Well, if you do speak your mind, um, the key to doing it in terms of addressing an issue with a partner is not to do so emotionally, you know, to present your concern in a way that is um, sort of neutral and also in their best interest. So, for instance, if your partner seems to have a drinking problem, the 
you don't approach them with BIA making it seem like, you know, uh, they're doing like their drinking is an affront to you personally. And how could they do this? And what are you thinking? You want to address it in a way that makes them interested in living up to their own values and considering whether their drinking is interfering with that. You know, I, you would say something along the lines of, and my father can correct this, but um, I've been noticing that you've been drunk a lot at night. And I wonder if it, it's making it harder to get to work the next day, or if it's taking away time you want to spend with the kids. Um, and I, I wonder if you've considered this, um, you know, it's not, it's making it so that they would be interested in, in looking at their problem. I think when a lot of people confront people, they do it, you know, confrontationally, they come angrily and emotionally. If you do, if you approach things that way, by all means, try it again in a more constructive and unemotional way. But if you've done, if you've approached someone that way and you still aren't seeing any results, seeing, you know, them be interested in making these changes, then you can't make someone do something they don't want to do. You can't make them feel something they don't want to feel. We can't control other people. And it's at that point when you have to sort of come to terms with the fact that no amount of talking is going to make this better. But then how do you... I, I feel like a lot of people might be hearing this and thinking, well, isn't the most important part of communication, though, to tell my partner how his or her behavior makes me feel? And, and Michael, I'm wondering if that's uh, a counterargument they hear a lot in your practice, and if so, how, how you address it? Well, the, the way I usually address it is that I can be certain if somebody says that they've tried that several times, and it didn't work. And they're wondering what they did wrong. And my answer to them is, yeah, the good news is you didn't do anything wrong. And the bad news is uh, there are ways your, your partner is never going to hear those words the way you want them to be heard because mm. uh, of the way he or she is. And if you just think a little bit about the way they are and how they respond to other people and similar criticism or similar demands or requests, uh, you'll see uh, the good news. It's, it's not that personal. And the bad news is you can't have it. Uh, so what you have to do is think about whether even with this kind of frustration, the overall benefit of your partnership is worth it. Does your partner communicate through some positive actions? Are there uh, other positive ways you get to feel loved or cared for? If there are, you have reason to stay in the relationship. You will frequently be frustrated by the things you can't say. That's why we got we challenged the idea that you should never go to bed angry. Uh, if you talk to any uh, old married couple, they'll tell you there are certain issues you're never going to agree on or discuss comfortably, particularly if you're tired. That 
knowing when you're getting into that troubled area and leaving it alone, even if it means you toss and burn and go to bed with a bad feeling, you're still much better off. And then in the morning after you've had at least a little bit of sleep, you can decide whether to shut up or to say something more diplomatic than you could possibly do at 11 or 12 o'clock at night. I feel like that's such a great counterpoint to what is such a popular idea, this idea, oh, don't don't go to bed angry. It sounds like you're saying, well, you know what? If the alternative to going to bed angry is trying to have a conversation, the conditions are not really going to be prime for and that are going to make it likely a bad a, a bad event, then you're you're kind of doing a service to the relationship if you actually wait and and bring it up the next day. Um, you know, your chapter though leaves me wondering about what, at least in my practice, I find is a common source of um, problems for couples, and it's a it's a mismatch between a person who is a high communicator and likes talking and, and likes sharing as, as much as possible. And another partner who is a silent type, as you call them, or who is more of an introvert and doesn't really like engaging in too much conversation or talking about everything. And I, and I worry about the silent folks and whether they unnecessarily get a bad rap as people who are quote unquote bad at communication. What do you, what do you guys say about silent types and how they can be good at communication without changing who they are? Well, I definitely think they get a bad rap. Um, And, you know, what we always say to, because it's usually women complaining about this, um, is that if the silent guy communicates through his actions, you know, if he doesn't want to hear about your day or ask about your day at dinner, but he does take out the garbage and cleans the cat box and, Uh, rumors to get the winter tires off your car and put the normal ones back on. And that's his way of communicating that he really cares. Um, And those, that's a useful way. That's a a good partnership way of communicating that. Um, And then the advice my father often gives is if you really want to communicate, go get a haircut and talk to your hairdresser or call up your best friends or, you know, get a pet, talk to that. Um, But you are exchanging uh, if you're saying it in words and he's saying it in actions that you do really care about each other. And that's really what's most important, whether or not he wants to gab or, you know, discuss the latest plot turn on Game of Thrones is sort of irrelevant. It's talking is fun and it's nice and it is a sort of release in a way of getting closer to someone. But if the way your partner gets close is by doing and not talking, that's still worthwhile and that's still worth um you know, seeing the value in it because it is highly valuable. And I love that you're pointing out that it's also a form of communication itself. Yeah, it's just some people don't know how to articulate what they're thinking or feeling or they aren't really interested in it, but they know how to do certain things and they've noticed that you need certain things done. You know, it shows a, a certain perception that a lot of guys who talk a lot wouldn't have. Um, and it's sort of consideration that is very rare. <laughs> and very, very useful and a good partner that they notice those things. You know, I have friends that have dated guys or married to guys that love to chat, but they will put, and my father actually is one of these people, according to my mother, 
um, has a lot to say, but will never remember to wash a dish, your dish or his dish, until his dying day. He will put the dirty dish in the sink and walk away. <laughs> if you find a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend who does not want to really talk about the day, but will never go to sleep with a dirty dish in the sink, <laughs> that's worthwhile. That's a good thing. <laughs> you know, speaking about this tension or this, this uh, duality between the verbal and the nonverbal. I, I also want to talk about another thing that you address in the book, and that's chemistry. That's another thing that people talk about all the time. Do we have chemistry? Don't don't we have chemistry? If you do have chemistry, that's treated as a as a really important thing and maybe a pre- prerequisite for relationships. What do you guys think about chemistry? Um, what is it, and what do you think about it as as a criterion for picking a mate? Well, we think there has to be some chemistry, but the moment the chemistry is there, uh, your brain will tell you to just uh, enjoy it. It's it's so pleasant. If you spend time with somebody you really like to be with, how can it ever be bad? And uh, what we're trying to do is plant a bug in your ear and saying. There are lots of ways it can be bad. (laughs) Keep on thinking. (laughs) Go down your list. Remember what your list is. Gather a lot of facts. You're in danger if you shut your eyes just because you've got some real good chemistry. It's as you're now in a very dangerous phase and you have to be careful. (laughs) But what makes it dangerous? Well, it can blind you to the more important things. You know, chemistry essentially is um, that pleasant buzz you get when you meet someone and have this unique connection. But a pleasant buzz uh, would be is a nice, more articulate way of saying a good feeling. Uh, and good feelings uh, can distract you from what you really should be looking for. You aren't just looking for someone who makes you feel good. You're looking for someone who shows that he or she can be responsible, that they can be considerate, that they, you know, are honest. Um, And, you know, uh, people that complain uh, that they keep dating the same loser over and over again, it's usually because they are getting blinded by chemistry because they are turned on by really, you know, exciting yet negative attributes. You know, for women, it's the classic, uh, I always fall for bad boys thing a guy who seems dangerous or kind of rough around the edges. And that just sparks something in them that they find irresistible. If they could uh, find a way to not discipline themselves, but even just hand a list of the dangerous qualities, the red flag qualities they're always blind to, to their best friends, to their girlfriends and say, hey, if you see me with another guy who has any one of these qualities and they're kind of just straight up, not up for interpretation, qualities like um, he has a goatee, he rides a motorcycle, he's sleeping on a friend's couch. Um, just tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, I know you really like this guy and I don't know him at all, but you told me to please let you know if you were dating a guy with these qualities to you know, flag you down and that is what I'm doing. I'm not personally criticizing you or him, I am fulfilling my duty as requested. (laughs) Uh, Oh, go ahead. Or people will go into therapy saying, I always date the wrong kind of person. How can I change that? And what they want therapy to do is to change 
what they're attracted to or, or what they want. And therapy often can't do that. They're going to be attracted to whoever they're attracted to. And the answer is uh, uh, there's nothing wrong with what your attraction is, but when it's to the wrong kind of person, you have to do a quick evaluation and stay away. You've got to be a lot choosier until you find somebody who provides you with at least a little bit of that excitement, but isn't on drugs, does have a bank account, doesn't have credit card debt, (laughs) doesn't have a string of broken relationships in the past. You've got to um, deal with the fact you're going to love whoever you're going to love or fall for whoever you fall for, but you have to be very, very choosy about who you actually give the green light to. But do you ever work with people who never seem to be attracted to, like chemically attracted to the right kind of person? Well, I, I usually feel that if there, that there's somebody out there, if they're lucky enough, who might have a little bit of that chemistry, but still be decent. Um, uh, but I, I mean, it's certainly possible that somebody always zeroes in on uh, impossible partners. Um, but I like to think not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wonder if you think that maybe part of the problem is that people mistake chemistry for connection, meaning that, I mean, the way you break it down, Sarah, makes a lot of sense, right? That if, if it's just a good feeling, if we think about it, it's just a good feeling that it, it makes it easier to look for other qualities. But I think a lot of people maybe don't say to themselves, I'm having this good feeling with this guy or this girl. I think what they say to themselves when they feel that chemistry, tell me what you think, is, oh my gosh, we just have this connection. It's, it's such a strong, instant connection. And they, they think that that's a really important, if not one of the most important qualities in a relationship. So it's like, how do you... How do you disentangle chemistry versus connection? Well, I think um, this is unfortunately one of the things that most people learn um, through either just bad experiences or rough divorces. Um, But what we point out is that there are some people that just connect with everybody. You know, they're very charismatic. They have this sort of um, rapport. I mean, I think either in this chapter about chemistry and connection. There's something to uh, references to Bill Clinton all the time, you know, or even to some degree, uh, any successful politician is that they shake your hand, they look you in the eye, and you immediately feel like they understand me and they're going to go fight for me in Washington, you know, that sort of thing. People need to um, figure out to, to hopefully not through having, getting married to a guy who ends up stripping every woman he meets because he connects with everyone, um, but just through one or two bad breakups, or hopefully through reading this book, that connection and chemistry are not synonymous. It can be very easy to connect with someone. Um, some people are very talented, or lots of people connect easily when they're drunk. But that doesn't mean that you have a special bond. It just means you make each other feel good for whatever mysterious reason. That guy compliments you a lot, or he has a specific way of honing in on what he knows what people want to hear. You know, if, if if chemistry and connection were the same, then everyone would marry their used car salesman. And that's just not how it works. <laughs> so people need to become 
and you know, and that's part of the bigger picture of focusing less on looking for a partner who makes you feel good. Um, because uh, this comes from age experience. And in my case, um, you know, having my parents and my sister be in these very stable, um, just, you know, marriages that are centered around partnership and for my sister raising young kids and, um, those kids were just here, which is why I think my father went straight to references to poop because they're <laughs> my sister's kids are young boys and that's all they talk about. Um, that you're not going to have a lot of romance, you know. It's and also romance is easy. Buying someone flowers is easy. Nursing them through a norovirus is hard. And you, what you want is the person who can do the hard stuff, not just you know call one eight hundred flowers or get you an edible arrangement. That's that's nothing. You want to have someone in your life who will clean up after kids if you have them, who will clean up after you if you have that aforementioned norovirus, who will go with you to visit your family even though your mother's entire side are angry alcoholics and survive and want to spend more time with you after that. The difficult times, not the fun, happy times are, are what you want to focus so if you get too caught up on the guy who makes you feel good or with romance or charisma, that's a short-term good deal. But that's not going to last. And that's such, oh, that's and such a, a great point. Go ahead, Michael, please. Well, in a therapy session, I was just thinking from what you said, somebody will say, but I feel such a connection. And, and the answer is, and that's important. Why? <laughs> <laughs> and But it feels so important. Uh, yeah, but... Uh, you know, you're 25, you're 30, you're 35 years old. Uh, you've had relationships. Um, why? What causes relationships to break up? What, in your experience, where have the heartaches come from? Um, and sort of by trying to get somebody to think with their rational mind and access their experience, which they've usually had a lot of, you know, when they're not talking about how good they feel, uh, they're usually sane and sensible people. If you can just get them to remember that, then they can start to talk about how what they have learned is much more important in the long run. And I'm not the one trying to protect them from themselves. That's their job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes people forget what they know or they, they don't allow themselves to know what they know. Um, I, I want to point out for our listeners a, a really cool feature of the book, which is that it's full. Every chapter has quizzes and uh, lists and and ways that people can really get involved and engage the material and and find out about themselves by answering some questions. It, it's such a cool way of approaching the the topic. Whose idea was it, and and why did you feel it was important to include those? Well, I oh, think, well, the oh, go ahead, Dad. Oh, I was just going to say, it shows how Sarah really has the overview as well as the humor. She really had an idea of what could make something entertaining and fun right, from, right through the last book and right through this book. All the credit is hers. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I was just, <laughs> well, now I'm going to uh, be demure, but... I was going to say the idea for the quizzes came from, um, you know, or I think most young women start learning about relationships is like young girl magazines and like women's magazines. You know, I remember at summer camp, 
people passing around YM and 17, and they're just chock full of quizzes about, and they're all ridiculous, but, you know, uh, who's the perfect boy for you based on your horoscope, or what do you really want from a guy now that you're starting 10th grade? You know, that sort of silly stuff. Um, But it also pointed out in talking about the book, and this might be tangential, but I think it's worth mentioning, um, that girls are conditioned from a very young age to think about relationships in this way in terms of what they're looking for in a guy beyond just, you know, dreamy eyes and fluffy hair, which isn't a thing, but made sense because I'm looking at a picture of my dog. Um, (laughs) But I've, and you know, the women, the people that ask us questions at readings, et cetera, are usually women. Uh, Men aren't really conditioned to think about these factors. And I know in my life, I've had a lot of guy friends who complained about how all women are crazy. And it's because all the women they date are crazy. Some of them certifiable because they're exciting and they're interested in them. And they, you know, a woman who's really borderline will decide that this guy she's just met should be her husband and the father of her kids because she feels good about him. And he'll, she'll walk up to him and say, let's go make a baby. You're the best thing that's ever happened to me. And a lot of guys, especially young guys, will be like, okay. You know, they, they don't, they are never trained in this way. Uh, they don't, it's not in magazines they read. The magazines they read just have pictures of boobs. You know, we need to get young men to think about these things the way that young women do. About what they want from someone aside from interest and excitement. Because excitement is not it's not stable. It's erratic and it leads to chaos and pain. You can have little bits of excitement, but someone who's really exciting can often decide that they don't like you anymore just as easily as they decided that they really liked you. And then you're in for a world of misery. Um, So to try and bring this back to the topic, the reason the book is structured with all these little bits of information is because that's often how, you know, in my experience, women get, this sort of information through quizzes, through lists. Um, but we would encourage men to think in this way. Maybe that is the gateway for our male readers to start making these considerations. Because mm-hmm. I don't think it's biological necessary with women. I really think that we get a lot of conditioning in this way that men don't get. And they need it because um, it would make their lives a lot easier, too, in terms of finding a partner and not constantly dating women that are nuts or not dating anyone at all. Well, and one one of our points about this is that if you if you talk about it in a business like way, you can have talks with your kid or your friend without their feeling like they're being pushed or uh, driven to agree with you. You're more talking about what principles do you look for, um, what are your screening techniques or what screening techniques do you believe are most important? You can have a conversation about a relatively intimate topic uh, without it becoming intrusive or stirring up deep feelings. And that's why we're sort of interested in getting a conversation going that you could have at school or you could have between a, a parent and a child without the child feeling that he or she is being treated as a child. Sarah, Michael, this has really been fun. We're almost out of time. I wish we could talk about so much more because the book is really packed with so much good stuff. But I want to know what, before we go, what you're working on next or what you're working on now. Um, Well, right now, actually, uh, we are working on 
what will hopefully be um, sort of a free guide distributed to support groups that deal with PTSD. Uh, we were contacted through our website by a, uh, a veteran who runs a PTSD support group at a VA hospital. And we actually met with these guys when we were in California. My father's mentor and, you know, uh, someone I, I knew for uh, since I was a baby because uh, this man and his wife introduced my parents to each other. Uh, his name was Dr. Ted Nadelson, and he was the head shrink at the VA in Boston. Um, so working, helping vets uh, isn't, you know, obviously a good thing in general, but seemed like such a amazing way to carry on Ted's legacy. Um, uh, who he passed away about, I think, 10 or 15 years ago. He was like an uncle to me, you know, my whole life. So uh, we wanted to create just a short guidebook that support groups like you know, the support group that we met could have to help them, especially because this support group was started by a veteran and run by veterans. It wasn't officially, it was done with the hospital, but it wasn't sort of formally organized. And it, you know, there isn't, it isn't a therapist running things. It's a veterans running things. Um, so that's something we're working on now and hopefully we'll, you know, have finished soon. Um, and we're interested in terms of a book in doing something, you know, my father's trained as a child psychiatrist as a specialty um, and, you know, I have so many friends who have kids. My sister has four kids. Um, and I was such, I think, a nasty little kid uh, that we would work <laughs> together on a book of, of advice for, you know, young adults. Um, so hopefully we'll be working on that next after we distribute this guidebook for um, PTSD groups. It, it sounds like you're venturing into new areas, at least new, new areas in terms of your writing. Yes, in areas where we can't use as many expletives is a really test both of us. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Those sound like exciting projects, and I hope that you will come back on the show when either of those uh, books comes out next. Oh, great. Thanks. We'd be grateful to. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, and have a good night. Thanks good night. for having us. That was my interview with Michael and Sarah Bennett authors of the book F Love, One Shrink's Sensible Advice for Finding a Lasting Relationship, published in 2017 by Touchstone. This is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology. I love receiving your comments and suggestions, so please keep them coming. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on contact to send me a message. And there you can also find links to follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.